As we start the new year, I'm sure each one of you have made resolutions. Because every new calendar year, we want to make changes in our life. A new calendar year gives us the opportunity and affords us the opportunity to start anew in our personal life and also in our spiritual life. And it's been like that every first week of the new year for as long as you have lived. But I don't know if you have the same frustration that I have. And it is the frustration that although we make action plans towards real change we want in our lives, the changes don't ever stick. The action resolutions of our lives are often not very long-lasting. They may last for a couple of weeks, but definitely not past March. Why not? I believe sometimes we don't often carry through with our resolutions toward change because our attitudes that accompany our actions do not match. The attitudes that accompany our actions do not foster a permanent change to what we want. Let me give you an example. I'm sure, like myself, you have made a resolution to lose weight. And you've determined, like myself, to exercise and eat healthier. It is the same resolution I have every year at the beginning of the calendar year. And I know myself, I know that in a few weeks, into this solid action plan that I have resolved in my mind, that I will not be able to keep up what I have resolved to do. And then I already know myself, and I'm sure you know yourself, it's because our attitudes... Do not match our actions. Instead of an attitude of perseverance and self-sacrifice so that we can lose weight, it is an attitude of obligations and an attitude that is easily swayed by just one meal, one unhealthy meal that wouldn't hurt my diet, followed by another unhealthy meal, and we'll make it up the next day, followed by another meal, and this one soda won't affect my diet, and it tastes so good, I'll just have another one. I'll be sure to drink water tomorrow, and I'll have three cheat days instead of one in a week. Or maybe I'll start after Chinese New Year. And so the attitude that we have towards a resolution we all want to keep does not match with what we desire to do. But more importantly, I'm sure many of you have made spiritual resolutions. I'm sure, and I hope, many of you have desired to be more Christ-like this year. You've looked at one aspect of your life that you need to improve on. Perhaps uh, it's your quick-temperedness, or you need to be more gentle, or more honest. Whatever the case, you've made a spiritual resolution. But have you determined in your attitude to allow your attitudes to accompany this action. And this is often where we fail, where our attitudes do not match up with our actions. But we want to take a look at attitudes that need to accompany our actions. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of James chapter 3. We're going to be taking a look at verses 13 to 18 this morning. And I want to encourage you uh, to bring your Bibles every week. It's a great time to start in the new year. And if you can't afford a Bible... And I mean this. If you can't afford a Bible, please come to the church office. We will buy you a Bible that you can bring every week. If not, you can download an electronic Bible. You don't need to look at me. We want you to look into God's Word. 
we pick up uh, this morning where we left off last year in our study in the book of James. We're in the middle of a series entitled Louder Than Words. What actions are we to demonstrate to show an unbelieving world our genuine faith in Jesus Christ? What are the attitudes that need to be cultivated, especially in this new year, that accompanies our actions that will scream out to the world that we are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look. James chapter 3, we begin in verse 13. Look with me. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. James begins this section by asking a question of his readers. Who are those among us that are wise and understanding? How do you define a wise person? Can you look at someone and say of that person, that person is wise, that person is understanding? It's hard to do so. We can't look at a person and say, well, that's a wise person. But James tells us how we can. He says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. James gives us a clue in the way they employ and live out their lives. They show forth wisdom when they act out in good works their lives through a spirit of humility. James calls it the meekness of wisdom. A wisdom that is meek, it is humble, it is gentle. You may know many things, But how do you present yourself wise? As smart as you may be, how do you present yourself as one who is wise? It is done so when you undergird what you do with an attitude of humility. Number one, the first attitude that accompanies our actions to declare Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world is an attitude of humility coupled with your actions. In the Greek, the word used by James connotes an idea of strength that is under control. It doesn't mean in humility that you go around saying, I'm unworthy, I'm dumb, I'm no good. But it is the ability to allow the strength that you have in your life to be under control and in control. And specifically, the ability to have your life under the control of the Holy Spirit. You knowing that apart from Christ, you and I can do nothing that cultivates an attitude of humility. You see, my friends, there's often a fine line between arrogance and confidence. If you were to ask someone, how would you define arrogance versus confidence? It's very hard to do. Very hard to do. It's hard to pinpoint. But if you ask someone, are they arrogant? Are they confident? Somehow... We can identify it. The difference comes in an attitude of humility. Let me give you an example. If you're going to correct someone, you can say it one of two ways, actions that demonstrate your attitude. If you're going to correct someone, you could tell someone, you know, you're so dumb. Every smart person knows that Paris is the capital of France. I think that person would call you an arrogant fool. Or you could tell that person, 
in another way. Sorry, if you don't mind me correcting you, I just want to let you know that from what I know, Paris is the capital of France. That demonstrates an attitude of one who is confident and yet humble at the same time. You see, the difference in action is perpetuated first by an attitude. And how we treat one another to show forth Christ must have as that attitude, an attitude of humility. Because there's always two ways of doing something, one in pride and one in humility. If you're going to help someone, does it come from an attitude where you really believe that you're so much better than someone else and you pity them and so you're going to help them? Or you know what, God has blessed me because he loves me so much more than he does you and because I pity you, I'm going to help you. That comes from an attitude of pride. Or when you help someone, does it come from a heart of humility that says, you know, I don't deserve what I have, but because God has shown me grace, I want to show you grace as well, and I want to help you. The display of how you help others with an attitude of humility speaks volume to a world that is assessing Christ through our Christian lives. And the reason I am belaboring this point is because so many Christians are quite arrogant. They're arrogant because we're already saved. We're arrogant because we are children of God, and somehow that puts us on a pedestal above everyone else. We do not act out of humility. In fact, even in evangelism, we come in with an attitude that says, take it or leave it, when you present Jesus Christ. You tell someone the good news and they don't accept, you get angry, take it or leave it. If you don't accept him, then you're going to go to hell. There is no attitude of humility there as you try to demonstrate Christ to them. There's no attitude of humility that realizes that apart from the grace of God in your life, you and I too would be destined for the same place. You see, there's a big difference in our actions when it is undergirded by humility or undergirded by pride. Let me give you another example. When you sell something to someone, let's say you own a business, when you sell something to a customer, do you appreciate that customer that they bought something from your store? Or do you somehow think that that customer was serviced because they found the product they needed at your store and so they need to thank you. With one, you're happy that they came and you're honored that they chose your store above anyone else's store. The other attitude, it seems like you're doing them a favor by paying attention to them and you believe that they should say thank you to you. I'm sure that you have been the recipient of these two types of attitudes when you're buying something or when you're being serviced at a restaurant, let me ask you something. Which attitude do you prefer? The Bible tells us Christians should have, as undergirding our actions, the attitude of the meekness of wisdom, an attitude of humility that pervades everything we do for Jesus Christ. Is that something that marks your life as you are called to live for him? 
The second attitude is found in verses 14 to 16. Look with me. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above. It is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. The second attitude that is spoken of in verses 14 and 16 is an attitude number two of generosity. The second attitude that must accompany our actions that declares Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world is an attitude of generosity. And let's unpack this attitude. James writes in verse 14 that if you have envy and you are self-seeking, then there is no need to sugarcoat the truth because that truth is found in verse 15. Those attitudes of envy and self-seeking and selfishness are not from God, but they are from the world. They are, in fact, demonic. Whenever there is an attitude promoting self, it is not from God. In fact, in verse 16, it goes further and tells us that where there is envy and self-seeking comes with it confusion. It forms the basis of evil. What James has done in verses 14 to 16 is that he has grasped the human nature. If you're honest with yourself, examine the actions that you have done in the past, the good works even you've done. Examine your actions. So often the actions we do are done out of envy and done out of selfishness. We do certain things to receive the limelight. We do certain things because we're envious of someone else. That which drives us is because we believe that we are owed those things. Because if someone else has it, then I need to have it as well. And so we work hard. We do good to show others we are deserving of accolades just as much as the other person. We want people to like us. We want people to applaud us. And that is the attitude that undergirds the action. And it is unsustainable. Because it is about self. I want this. I want that. Because I'm owed it. And in our minds, as the world is self-seeking, everybody for themselves, then I have a right to also seek those things for myself. You know, my friends, you need to understand that Christians are not immune from the attitudes of selfishness and envy. But James is very clear to note that Christians should not harbor this attitude because it comes from the devil and it is the seed of much disorder and evil. Even when we serve here in the church, how much of our actions are driven by an attitude of envy and selfishness? How much of our serving of the Lord, for the Lord, is done so that others will see that we're on the stage? You need to examine your own life. The implication of this negative example is that Christians instead should cultivate an attitude of generosity. It is an attitude of generosity that must accompany our actions that will speak louder than words about our faith in Jesus Christ. But I'll tell you what, 
this attitude of generosity is very difficult to cultivate, especially in our me-first entitlement generation. It's hard. And our culture is changing rapidly, and you are a part of that culture. And if you're not aware of that culture, you're going to get sucked in. For example, within the past 10 years even, I notice this often at retreats, but anytime we have a gathering where there is a buffet meal, in years past, a little less than 10 years ago, especially at a retreat, when you're standing in line, if there are young people standing in line, they will go and they will allow or invite those who are older to come to the front of the line to eat first. But now, simply 10 years later, that's often not the case. The young people have no problems with older people standing behind them. They're hungry. They want to eat. And if the older people wanted to be first in line, they should have gotten there first. Now, I want you to understand something. There is no right or wrong as it relates to who stands in line. All right? I want you to understand that. There is no Bible verse that says older people should eat first. It's not there. I've checked. But what I'm simply sharing with you is an indication of where our culture is going. The attitudes that define my culture today in this generation, young and old, is a culture that says my needs are just as important as your needs. In fact, our needs are all equal. And so it doesn't matter if you're older or younger or have special needs. It doesn't matter anything. It doesn't bother me as long as my needs are being met. You wait your turn to have your needs met. But the Bible tells us for the child of God, generosity should accompany our actions. Now, why? Because we have to, to be good Christians? No. The reason believers and followers of Jesus Christ need to have an attitude of generosity that accompanies their action is because of what you believe about Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient in your life, if you believe that Jesus Christ fills all of your needs and you are fully satisfied in Him, then guess what? You don't need anything else. So you have no problems giving it away. Whether it's time, whether it's resources, whether it's your ability, whether it's your service. If in Christ you find full satisfaction, if in Christ you find your sufficiency in Him, then you're full. You have it all. Then naturally, a believer will be generous. This is a theological recognition that many Christians are missing today. That you and I have everything we need in Jesus Christ. Our eternal security is assured our eternal plan is assured. Our heavenly protection detail is secured. The God of heaven watches over us day and night. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Nothing can harm us that God does not allow. The Bible tells us the heavenly Father will care for our provisions as He loves us more than the birds of the air. 
And if we find in Jesus Christ our sufficiency, then what is preventing us from living a life of generosity? But you know, most Christians are living life as if the world owes them big time. As I've previously said, why? Why are we fighting for the scraps of this earth when we have been guaranteed and been given all that heaven has to offer And yet, sadly, you and I fight for those things every day. We fight for the scrap of prestige. We fight for the scrap of money. We fight for the scrap of reputation. And we are fighting for the scraps of this earth when we have already been assured and guaranteed all the glories and the riches that heaven has in store for us. But we fight. We fight for those things because we see everyone in a rumble and scrambling for those things And we don't want to lose out. And that's the problem. We think we have something to lose when we already have everything. But an attitude of generosity will radically change your actions in life. You know, one of the greatest feelings in the world is when you find money unexpectedly on the street. Right? Uh, And you find money... In the middle of a place where there's no way to track down the owner. So you don't feel guilty about trying to return it. And uh, you find the money and it isn't too much, like $100,000, where you feel kind of obligated to return it because someone may really need this. It's not too much where you feel guilty using it, but it's not so small and insignificant that it's worth your while picking it up from the floor. But it's a great feeling when unexpectedly, you know the feeling when you you find money. Last week, uh, our family was in Taiwan with half of Metro Manila. And uh, uh, we were at the Taipei main station. We were buying tickets. And as uh, we were about to buy tickets at the ticket counter, uh, we found uh, a 50 NT dollar coin, about 85 pesos uh, on the floor. That's enough to buy a train ticket. I looked at my wife, she looked at me, and uh, we paused for a moment whether we should pick it up or not. We could save some money and buy us a train ticket. But we already had enough to buy our five tickets, and so we agreed to leave it on the floor in case uh, someone else may need it more than we do uh, to buy a train ticket, and we felt good about it. A few hours later, as we were uh, in the crowded streets of Taipei, in a very busy shopping district, I noticed that there were two 1,000 NT dollar bills on the street in a sea of thousands of people. It's about 3,400 pesos, 2,000 NT dollars. Let me ask you, what would you do? What would you do? For a brief moment, uh, in my spiritual justification, I said, wow, thank you, Lord. I didn't pick up the small amount. Now you have given me a bigger amount. Thank you. What would you have done? It was in the middle of a very busy street. It wasn't dropped in a store where you would naturally bring it to the store manager in case someone who dropped it would go to the store and get it back. Um, Thousands of people were walking this street. Uh, It probably just fell out of someone's pants or wallet or something like that. Like most of you, finders keepers. 
And uh, you probably wouldn't have batted an eye to pick it up and pocket it as well. And I was about to do so, but darn it, I have to preach this sermon this morning. And I already outlined my sermon before I left on vacation. And point number two was the attitude of generosity. Why in the world, Lord, do you let these things happen right when I'm going to preach it on that Sunday morning? So somehow that came into my mind and I said, Steve, you have everything. But Lord, it's shopping money. But you have everything. And that still small voice was correct. I had everything. I didn't need it. And so, as hard as it was, we left it there. I left it there. Now, some of you may be sitting there jaded, thinking, well, what if someone behind you, more wealthy, picked it up? It's between them and God. It's between them and God. My actions were not because I'm naturally generous. None of us really are. My actions were because I had an attitude of generosity being reminded in Scripture that I already have everything I needed that God has supplied me. So you know what? I tell you the story, but it doesn't bug me that I left 3,400 pesos on the ground so that maybe God can sovereignly allow someone else who really perhaps is in need to pick it up and be able to find blessing in that. It's really a change in action when we have cultivated an attitude of generosity. And from it comes graciousness, politeness, kindness. These are the things that flow out, out of an attitude of generosity. A polite and respectful person has at his or her core a generous a kind and gracious person has at his or her core a generous heart. You know, kind people are really generous people. I think you know Solomon. Remember the story of Solomon? When he was a young man, God asked him what he wanted as he was about to be king of all Israel. And this young man asked God for wisdom to rule. Because of what he asked for, he didn't ask for riches, he didn't ask for prestige, he just asked for wisdom to rule God's people. God gave him wisdom and gave him everything else. But there's one thing that God gave Solomon that I think most of us have forgotten. If you were to read 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, 1 Kings 4, 29, there was something else God gave him. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding. And note this. And God gave him largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. God gave Solomon wisdom. God gave Solomon riches. God gave Solomon prestige. He was known throughout the ancient Near East. But God also gave Solomon a very big, generous heart. Why? I've often thought about that. Why would God give Solomon a big heart, a generous heart? So I thought about it this week. I believe that if God was going to reveal himself as he had called the nation of Israel to be the light 
amongst a heathen population. And if he was going to use Solomon to be a shining light of the true God, Yahweh, then he needed to make Solomon also generous. You see, my friends, if a person is smart and rich, but they are selfish, all about self, would you pay attention to those types of people? No. Because the world is full of rich, smart, selfish people. It's always about them. But if the person, if a person is smart and rich and generous, then that's something the world pays attention to. Because that's not normal. A man or a woman who is rich, who is smart and generous. Now, even more than that, if a not-so-rich person and a not-so-prominent person is generous, then the world really pays attention. And they will ask you why you do what you do, and then you have the opportunity to tell them, it is because I am fully satisfied in Jesus Christ. Each year we make resolutions. If you were to examine your resolutions that you've made, what are they? For a lot of people, I pray that I can lose weight so that I can look better. For others, I will study harder so that I can get better grades. For others, I will work harder, meet more people, make more social contact, grow my network so that I can make more money. Those are the typical resolutions I hear. But you notice that all those resolutions are self-seeking. It's all about self. The betterment of myself. Why not make resolutions based on the fact that you already have everything as a child of God and that your resolution is that because you have everything, you want to reflect Christ more in your life by being more generous with your time, by being more generous with your resources, by being more generous with, generous with your words and politeness, by being more generous with your actions in kindness. That will make an unbelieving world pay attention to the Christ you claim to live for. Because you are fully satisfied in Him, you can't help but give your life to others. The third attitude that accompanies the actions that proclaims Christ to an unbelieving world is found in verses 17 to 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James speaks of a third attitude that must accompany our actions. And number three, that is an attitude of peace. An attitude of loving peace. In verse 17, the Bible tells us, James writes, the wisdom that demonstrates Christ's likeness is one that is first off pure, meaning that it is above board without any attitudes that is talked about in verses 14 to 16. And once we have a clean slate, we have a clean start, our lives are pure, then that attitude that must pervade our life must be one of loving peace, peaceable being agreeable, when you have a clean start like we have in this new year, would you cultivate an attitude that loves peace? It's not something naturally we will gravitate towards. But the Bible tells us it is a fundamental attitude that must mark 
our actions. You see, if you have as its foundation an attitude of peace in all the things that you do, then the natural progression of things will happen. First comes with it a natural gentleness. That's what verse 17 says. A gentleness in our action because we are striving for peace. We are striving for agreement. And for someone who is a hot-tempered like myself, often seen only at the home, but that's oftentimes when all of us are hot-tempered at home, this is where loving peace as an attitude is important. Because I've, I want peace in the home. My words, whether gentle or not, will drive towards whether there is war or peace in the home. But from that gentleness where you have to bite your tongue from saying what you want to say, what you really want to say, and holding back the actions that you want to do but will cause greater conflict, then you must be willing to yield. That's what verse 17 says. Willingness to yield, a natural progression, losing your rights, not fighting for the sake of peace, but ultimately for the sake of Christ and your testimony for Christ. That's a hard one too. A willingness to yield your rights, that's not natural. But if you love peace as you're supposed to, and to strive towards that, it comes with a gentleness, which comes with it, a willingness to yield. And from that yielding, the world will be surprised, because then they will be able to see mercy and Christ-like fruits that come from your life. And this attitude is to be applied to all people, and it is to be true to life meaning that your actions better fit your attitudes and vice versa. You see, verse 18 sums it all up. It is an attitude of peace coupled with the action of peace that shows our genuine faith to the world, the fruit of righteousness. For me, this attitude is one of the hardest. I can do humility. Our culture is good at that. I can do generosity. But loving peace, an attitude of peaceability, it, it's hard. Because we're so focused in our lives on rights and justice. We all have an elevated sense of fairness. You treat me fair, I treat you fair. That's the way it goes. Mom and dad has to treat me fair, and I will be fair to them, and vice versa. It's all about justice, it's all about rights and my rights, it's all about fairness. You know, my family is just like yours, it's a normal one, we fight. My father is 80, I'm 40, and there are times, even today, where I will fight with my 80-year-old father. We have differences of opinion, and we still argue. We're both pastors. We live on one side of the world and the other on the other. And yet we still have disagreements and we fight because we both think we're right. It's natural for any family. But when we're fighting or in heavy disagreement, the wisdom of my mother steps in. 
they'll call me and she'll say, don't argue with your father. He's 80 years old. Hum, hum, just let it go. It's not worth it. You know, he's changed too. He's gotten older. And you've got to understand, your father's older. And he may not be right. But would you just forgive him? You know, that's hard. Because in our culture today, it's about rights. We have to come out on the winning side. We have to prove our point. But let me tell you what. If you love peace as an attitude, then you'll understand that your actions are not based on who's winning or who's right. Because in my arguments with my father, it has nothing to do with age. It has nothing to do with right or wrong because I feel like I'm always right. But it has everything to do with loving peace. Families fight over the most ridiculous of things. A third party assessing what you're fighting over will laugh. But in our families, we fight. It's natural. We're all sinful people with differences of opinion who want to be right all the time. But can we, for the sake of Jesus Christ, as a testimony to the world, love peace? A sinful family with disagreements coming together in spite of those disagreements and loving one another in peace is a wonderful testimony to an unbelieving world about your genuine faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I find it ironic for someone like me who has a high sense of fairness and justice why my Chinese name is what it is. See, when my grandmother, Julia, gave all her grandsons Chinese names, uh, she gave the Chinese names from the fruit of the Spirit. And being the third grandson of the Tan family, you know which fruit of the Spirit I got stuck with? Peace. Of all the fruits I got, I got the one about peace. And I am not one who likes peace because I grew up as such a fighter. Always about equality and fairness. Maybe God in his sovereign humor thought it would be really funny that he would give me a name of the fruit of the spirit of peace. My point is it's not natural for any one of us. And yet I have this name. And it is a reminder to me that I, for the love of peace, must yield my rights so that others can see the Christ-likeness that I wish to employ so they can see the mercy of God in my life extended to others. How do we achieve it? Verse 18 tells us attitudes and actions are intertwined. One cultivates an attitude of peace by making peace, and one cultivates peace by having an attitude that desires peace. Attitudes accompany actions. As we kick off a new calendar year, 
instead of the usual resolutions we make that are often action-based resolutions, I wonder this year we can make attitude-based resolutions to give it a try. Because action-based resolutions don't seem to last because what must precede it must be the attitude. Can we resolve this year to cultivate an attitude of humility as a church, an attitude of generosity as a church, attitude of peace or loving peace as a church so that we can exclaim loudly to the world that we indeed are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. We are followers of Jesus and he exemplified it in his life. You see, when Jesus came into the world to die for us, it was with these same attitudes grounded in foundation in love that caused him to go to the cross. The Bible tells us Jesus humbled himself took on human form so that he could die on our behalf. The Son of God, God himself, when he could have shown the world in rightful arrogance, I am the creator God. There is no one else like me. He did not. But with an attitude of humility, walked the path of the cross and of suffering so that he could die for you and for me. And Jesus did not think of himself, but was completely unselfish when he came on earth and lived a life of generosity because we often equate generosity with a gift. And Jesus Christ gave of his own life so that we who deserve to die might live. This is the ultimate act of generosity. How many of you would give your life for the life of someone else? Very few of us if none at all. And yet Jesus Christ, God himself, gave his life on our behalf, took on the sins of the world to show generosity to the people he loved. Sinners like you and me. The reason he did it was because he loved peace. He gave up his rights as God himself for the sake of bringing peace on earth and goodwill to men. He came and he died to bring peace because his death allowed God's rightful wrath to be appeased. And his death finally brought peace between God and mankind so that we can have fellowship with him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He was fully in the right. But he let his rights go so that he could bring peace between God and man. Jesus Christ exemplified all of these things in attitude and action. And if we say we are followers of Jesus, Christians, then can we not make this year a year where we resolve to be more Christ-like in cultivating the very same things he perfectly exemplified in humility, in generosity, and in loving peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this time of quietness and reflection, thank you for speaking to me. I pray that the Word of God will have spoken this morning to many this 
who are with us. Teach us that it is more than the outward actions. It is the attitudes that come with it that must change. We look at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we see one who perfectly exemplified humility and generosity, the lover of peace, and we've fallen far short because we don't want any of those things. No wonder we are not making an impact in this world. So teach us, Lord. Convict us, Lord. Challenge us this morning, especially as we take communion, remembering what Christ did to also say, Lord, we want to do the same thing. We humble ourselves. In you, we have everything, so we give of ourselves. We will give up our rights as you did for the sake of peace. As we come now to a time of communion, may this be more than a symbolic act as if we are doing it out of an obligation, but it is a reminder for us for how we are to live, remembering through action in our own lives what Jesus Christ did on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.